even the musics, the musical instruments are wanting to praise, huh? That hum there. If you turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5, we're slowly making our way verse by verse through this book. James 5, we're beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> this is the holy, inerrant word of God. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Amen. Father God, we bow our hearts and submit our hearts to your word. I pray that you would enable me to faithfully preach your word and each one of us to be hearers and doers of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the French poet, Saint Foix, was a, uh, a very uh, wealthy man in terms of the income that was coming in, but he always seemed to spend more than what came in, and so he was getting worse and worse into debt. And one day he was in the barber shop, all lathered up, ready to be shaved, and one of his largest creditors came in, and as soon as he recognized St. Foix, he came walking over there, and he was just irate and saying, when are you going to get me my money? I've been waiting long enough for this money. And he begged him, you know, not to be making a big scene there in the barber shop. And he said to him, won't you wait for the money until I am shaved? Well, the tradesman just brightened up, and he thought, well, this is a great prospect of getting the money, you know, and he said, certainly. And so uh, St. Uh, Foy made the uh, barber a witness to the agreement, wiped the lather off of his face, refused to shave, and never shaved again till the day that he died. <laughs> okay, won't you wait for the money until I have shaved? You know, it was a technicality that got him out of that, that debt, but I think everyone would recognize he was a thief. There's no way that you could get around that he was a thief. Well, the Jewish Pharisees in James's day were masters at that kind of subterfuge. In fact, they had been trained all of their lives in the strange ethical system that's now known as the uh, Talmud. And Jesus spoke all kinds of things against the oral traditions of uh, the rabbis and the, the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, constantly challenging these oral traditions. By the way, if you've never seen any of the oral traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees, just go down to... Creighton uh, Law Library and take a look at the Soncino edition, that's the unabridged edition of the Talmud, and I guarantee you, just pick it, any volume up and start reading. You probably won't get past five, ten pages before you're shaking your head and mystified at the obtuseness here of how these guys are able to get around the clear teachings of the Scripture. Uh, given the right circumstances, they could justify theft and murder and sodomy and incest, and I've got the photocopies to prove it if you guys question that. And Jesus spoke about exactly those, thi uh, th those, those things. But more to the point of our passage here, they had all kinds of creative ways of getting rich at the expense of other people. In Gary North's masterful essay on uh, Jewish law in the Talmud, he said this, 
Talmud is a giant exercise in finding ways to escape the Old Testament texts. And I think he was right. I think he was absolutely right. And so when we're dealing with the first question that's in your outline, uh, which is uh, who is being addressed here, we need to keep that in mind. Judaism by Rome, and it was the only country that was allowed to do this, they were allowed to govern their own people anywhere in the empire. didn't have to be just in Israel. Anywhere in the empire, according to their laws, and the laws that they judged by were the Talmudic oral traditions. They were not the laws of the Bible. Now, they overlapped, but uh, it was uh, the oral traditions of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, just so that you can get a little bit of a feel for what James is up against here, what I want to do is I want to read... Jesus's rebukes, his woes against just the economic uh, sins of the Pharisees that really were uh, flowing straight out of this oral tradition. In Matthew 23, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And they did. In that seven-year war, in the middle of which was 70 A.D., uh, God poured out uh, his judgments upon him. There were over a million Jews that were killed in Jerusalem, and there, I don't know how many million were killed throughout the rest of the empire. It was an incredibly miserable time uh, that they went through. And James picks up on some of the woes and the judgments that Jesus had predicted. Uh, in Matthew 23, uh, Jesus accused the scribes and Pharisees of taking widows' houses away from them, taking advantage of them economically, Accused them of extortion, self-indulgence, all kinds of uncleanness, murder, oppression, and causing those Christians to flee. And so when we dealt in chapter 1, verse 1, those were the culprits that had oppressed these Jews and had scattered these Christian Jews all over the empire. They were the ones who had been oppressing them, had taken advantage of them, even in the diaspora. Now, there's differing views amongst scholars as to whether he is in this paragraph addressing Christians or whether he's addressing unbelievers, let me first of all give the, the reasons why uh, many scholars, and probably most, say he's addressing unbelievers outside the church. First of all, he does not address them as brethren here, as he repeatedly has in previous sections. Second, when, you, when he starts addressing the brethren again in verse 7, it's a totally different tone. Okay? Uh, it's to comfort them for having experienced the oppression of verses 1 through 6. And so verse 7 says, Therefore, be patient, brethren. Uh, verse 7, the brethren, and verse 1, the rich, seem to be two different groups of people. And so logic would say that the rich of verse 1 are not part of the brethren of verse, uh, of verse 7. Thirdly, he doesn't call the rich to repentance as he has the brethren and all, every one of their sins previously. Instead, he basically says they're finished, they're toast, you know, they're being fattened for the slaughter, verse uh, 5, you know, in 70 A.D. 
And uh, so this is the direction that many scholars go, that he is just opening up the windows of the church and he's addressing the persecutors of the church outside those windows. Now, other scholars say, now don't be too hasty in saying that because some of the people, uh, the rich he was addressing in chapter 2, seem to be guilty of some of these things and he says that they were in the synagogue and they were being honored within the synagogue. See, at this point in the church's history, uh, especially in outlying uh, regions of the empire, the church still was the synagogue. In Jerusalem, many of them had been kicked out, but there still wasn't that radical separation between church and synagogue at that point, and he speaks of them uh, being in the synagogue. And there would have been many people, uh, like the Apostle Paul, who had been so ingrained in this Talmudic-type teaching, the oral traditions, that even true believers may have been sucked into this kind of a thing. For example, this may be shocking to you, but I, I have run across many businessmen who would much rather deal with a pagan than deal with a Christian. You wonder, well, why? Well, it's the way that they have been ripped off because these Christians just say, oh, you're a Christian, you know, maybe you could do this for me for free. And they suddenly expect a handout or they expect a major discount, you know, from a plumber or from a, from a, a builder of a house or something like that. And using the same kind of strange logic where I don't want to pay you because you're a Christian, maybe people were ripping off these reapers in the first century. <clears throat> and um, uh, there are many people who think, well, I deserve it anyway, and so uh, they avoid making the payments of debts. These people are rich anyway. They're not going to miss it, and so uh, they take something from the business. I've talked to so-called Christians who justify theft in the name of mercy, okay, who refuse to pay off student loans, who declare bankruptcy as an e easy way out for themselves, or in other ways, who are robbing God or cheating others. So even though I think the main application is to unbelievers who are outside the church, there were probably these people attending the church at least, at least being professing believers, and they probably walked out at the end of the sermon, never came back, because uh, it was probably quite offensive, but they probably, even if they were technically not believers, they probably were uh, able to hear this message. Now, let's look first of all at what was in store for these unbelieving rich persecutors. I should say, okay, it's, it was landlords, it was scribes, Pharisees, the rulers of that time, and uh, um, I forgot what I was going to say. We'll move on. Verse 1. <laughs> Take a look at verse 1. Uh, it indicates they're going to be facing miseries that will make them weep and howl. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. And I think this must have been an incredible encouragement to the disciples to realize, hey, God noticed. God cares. He's going to do something about this. Now, God is not a God who just uh, uh, ignores what's happening in the world. Now, so certain is James that these miseries will come that he uses a prophetic present tense. In other words, uh, he is saying that in God's timetable, you know, maybe future, but it's as good as done. Your, your riches are corrupted. Uh, your gold is as good as done. Your, your, your garments are as good as moth-eaten. And if you want to reap, uh, re read about the vivid weeping and the howling that came upon the Jews during that period of time, Read Josephus's account. How many people here have Josephus? It's really a worthwhile book to have and to read through as far as historical background of what was happening back then. 
But he talked about incredible miseries that came upon the Jews during that time. Within Jerusalem, there were three factions that were fighting against each other and that were robbing the other citizens who weren't a part of these uh, factions. They intimidated, they stole, they tortured to extract uh, uh, information and engaged in all kinds of barbarities. There was one faction that seemed to be given over to homosexuality, and we won't get into the barbarities they engaged in, but there were examples of seeing a person uh, who noticed a scout. Each of these groups had scouts that they would send out looking for food, and they noticed a scout coming, and they had saved just a little bit of food, and they quickly were scarfing that down. These scouts would run up, cut open their stomach, uh, Josephus says, and grab the food right then and there. There was all kinds of strange things that were happening in Jerusalem. It was almost demonic. Verse 3 here says that their riches would eat their own flesh. And Josephus mentions ways in which the very riches that they were trusting in turned out to be something that went against them. For example, early on in the war, there were a number of wealthy Jews who tried to escape from the city and they swallowed huge amounts of gold and were waddling out. And uh, when the Romans found out about it, they, uh, they cut open their stomachs while they were alive, took the gold right out. But he, he talked there about the, the miseries that were about to come upon these people because of their rebellion against Christ. Now, verse 3 says that this was going to happen to them because they had already been heaping up those treasures in an ungodly way, he says, in the last days. And I want to comment just briefly on that phrase because it's hugely misunderstood nowadays. Most people assume we're living in the last days. You know, and uh, what I want to point out is that the last days uh, included prior to Christ's coming, the days leading up to Christ's first coming, his uh, birth, and all the way through to 70 A.D. They were the last days of the Old Testament, the old economy, the old Jerusalem. They were the last days of Israel as a land, uh, as a special set-apart uh, people for God, the last days of the priesthood and of all of the temple rituals that went on. That's the kind of last days. And let me just give you a couple scriptures that demonstrate that. Jesus was said to have been born in the last days. 1 Peter 1, verse 20. Okay, he was born in the last days. He taught his disciples in the last days. Hebrews 1, verse 2. The Spirit was said to have been poured out at Pentecost in the last days. That's Acts 2, 16 through 17. And even the one that people talk about as being future, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, where things, perilous times are going to come and it's going to get worse and worse in the last days. Well, look at the present tense there and look at the fact Paul indicates he was living in the last days. He tells, tells Timothy to avoid those last days teachers. Well, in order to be able to avoid them, he had to have been around them. Uh, Jude uh, uses the present tense as well about people in his own time who were living in the last days. Well, using exactly the same language, James here says that they had been, past tense, laying up treasures in the last days. So when we're talking about this judgment, we're not talking about something that's uh, 2,000 years away, you know, or something like that. This is something imminent. It is on the horizon. In fact, the context indicates that. Uh, look, take a look at verse 8. He says, you also be patient, establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, I don't believe this is talking about the second coming, which is going to be a physical coming to the earth uh, in the future, but this is talking about his coming in judgment on Jerusalem that he predicted was going to happen, and it happened soon. It was around the corner. It was at hand. 
Uh, in fact, in Matthew 24 and 25, the first half of Matthew 24 is 70 AD, and it keeps using language like soon, it is near, it is at hand. Whereas the second half of chapter 24 all the way through 25 deals with the second coming and it uses language like this. He went away for a long time. It was far off. It was distant. It's quite distinct. Okay, so there was a coming in judgment spiritually in 70 AD. There's go and that was soon. There's going to be a coming at the end of history. There's another verse, verse 9. Uh, very last sentence of verse 9, he says, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Well, 2,000 years later is not at the door. It's not soon. This is something that was imminent, that was about to come upon them. And the reason I bring this up is that some people have the idea that God doesn't bring any judgments in history. All he does is he judges at the end of history. Now, it's true. God is going to settle all accounts at the end of history, but many times... He brings judgments to bear in cultures and in individuals' lives, especially if they're willing to obey Luke 18, the parable of the importunate widow, where he says that the, the, the elect need to cry out to him day and night. And so here we've got the cries of the laborers and we've got the cries of, of the reapers who are reaching the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of armies. God hears. It is perfectly legitimate to be praying uh, in that way. Now... The word Sabaoth in verse 4, Lord of Sabaoth, is uh, the Hebrew. This is Greek here, but he's picking up an Old Testament Hebrew term for armies. Okay, Lord of armies. Now, Jesus was the Lord of heavenly armies, and the scripture makes that clear. And he was also the Lord of earthly armies. In the Old Testament, Lord of Sabaoth refers to both. Uh, uh, he talked about Babylon's army that came against Israel as being God's army. And Israel's army as being God's army. He was the Lord of all of the armies of the earth. He's also the Lord of heaven. And in the New Testament, Jesus makes it very clear he was going to send Roman armies against Israel in the first century. But he also makes it very clear he was going to send his heavenly hosts. All of the armies of heaven were at his command. And it's interesting, in the first century, there, were, there was a Roman historian and there was a Jewish historian, neither of whom were Christians, who independently said that they saw all of these angelic hosts in the heaven, these chariots that were fighting against Jerusalem. See, God sent Rome. He also sent his heavenly angels to make sure it got done, okay? And uh, so he was the, the Lord of armies or the Lord of, of Sabaoth. In fact, in Matthew 22, 7, Jesus used the parable of a king to describe himself in coming in judgment on Israel, he says, but when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Well, that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. So that's the reference to Lord of Armies, Lord of Sabaoth there. Now, I regret that I, I had made out a nice little chart from Psalm 39, and I didn't put it into your outline, but it's amazing how James gives an exposition of Psalm 39. It's just point after point of identity and the illustrations that he uses that are, are so similar. And uh, in Psalm 39, it makes it very uh, explicit that the moth that chews up their riches is God. He's the moth. Uh, just read it in Psalm 39. And the Lord of Sabaoth, obviously, is the Lord of armies who would bring judgment as well. And so verse 5 indicates that even though these rich people were getting away with their fraudulent ways, right then, the Christians should not feel envious. They should not feel bad as if God's not being fair. Um, after the sermon, we're going to be singing Psalm 73. And it's the psalm where uh, Asaph looks out there and he says, 
Lord, I, I just feel so bad. I feel envious of the wicked because they're all rich. They don't have any troubles. It's us Christians that are having all the troubles, and how come we don't get what they get? And then later on in the psalm, and I, I really regret, I, I needed to add two more verses to the psalm to get the conclusion. We're only going to be singing the first four. But anyway, uh, at the end of that psalm, he realizes, oh, they're going to be slaughtered. I don't envy their position. And James is even more explicit here. If you take a look at um, verse 5, he says, You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Uh, another version has it, You fattened yourself as for the day of slaughter. New English Bible paraphrases the meaning this way, Fattening yourselves like cattle, and the day for slaughter has come. Now, nobody in his right mind envies the heifers that we buy out of Iowa for our meat every year because they've got such a lackadaisical, carefree life. You know, all they do is eat and enjoy themselves. They're lazy. They don't have to do anything. Nobody in his right mind is going to envy them because they know what's going to happen. And he says, for you to be envying the lifestyle of the rich is as ridiculous as envying a heifer just because it's eating and being merry. He says, realize that tomorrow they die. They're being fattened for the slaughter. Now, those are kind of tough words, kind of rough words that he is giving there. And um, the question might come, why in the world is God so angry with these wealthy persecutors? Was it because they were rich? That's the conclusion. I just did a search on the web. I get astonished every week at the, the, at the, the shallowness of sermons. But I did a search out there just to see, you know, how other people treat this. It's just amazing to me how people see God as being against the rich. He's not against the rich. Uh, Abraham was rich. Four of the apostles were rather wealthy when they became apostles, and I can show exegetically that they remained wealthy through the remainder of their life. If you see the things that they were able to finance themselves, they remained wealthy. God's not against uh, the rich per se. Uh, that, that's not the, uh, the point. God was upset with them for two reasons, and your outline, they're listed there. The wicked way in which they got their wealth, and secondly, the wicked way in which they independently used their wealth. They did not get their wealth through godly dominion. Okay, verse 4. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. <clears throat> to promise wages and not to deliver is fraudulent, and yet it happens all the time, especially in underdeveloped countries, you know, where uh, uh, people are promised things and they, they have little recourse. We need to praise the Lord that contract law is still honored in America. It is absolutely foundational to security and stability uh, in a country. All throughout uh, the Middle East and Asia, you see people being whipped, ripped off with little recourse. For example, in Thailand, you have many, many children. It's incredible the numbers of children that are promised jobs and pay from the villages. They go to Bangkok, and what happens in Bangkok is they're made prostitutes or uh, in slave labor. And the Lord hears. He sees that kind of stuff, and he will judge those wicked uh, businessmen who promise but do not deliver. The second evil that they used to gain more money is given in verse 6. He says, you have condemned, you have murdered the just. Now, let's just take the first part. You have condemned the just. This is a trick that's frequently used in America 
to extort profit from other people. Uh, one company will bring a lawsuit against another company for developing software or, you know, who knows what kind of a thing. And that other company, because the cost of litigation is just going to settle out of court, uh, it is a condemnation that results in the benefit of this one country. And it's just because of the cost of justice in our nation. And so uh, even though the company being condemned is perfectly innocent, because there is a threshold for profitability, they just decide it's not worth fighting it and they drop the development of their software or whatever other agreement that they have to come to. Apple Corporation did this quite a number of times for, I think, perfectly legitimate competition that came up and just the threat of lawsuit was enough to close down these companies, even though I don't think that there was any... There, this happens all the time with various, uh, various companies. The company being condemned is innocent, yet they have to settle. Now, there are legal means and there are illegal means of extorting profits from people. We're all familiar with the mafia, how they used extortion. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize that the mafia continues to be alive and well in America, uh, quite strong, only they tend to have a little bit more... Um, legitimate uh, front. Uh, for example, they, they're working in, 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 in medicine um, and especially the, the lucrative uh, organ donation uh, industry. But in any case, uh, down through history, condemnation or false accusation has been a staple to extort money and Jesus accused the Pharisees of extortion. That was one of the things you can read in the Talmud where they, they justified doing this. The last wicked way of gaining profit is mentioned as being murder. You have murdered the just. Now you might think, you know, that may have happened some in the Wild West and might have happened some during the prohibition with the mafia, but it really doesn't happen that much today. But I would uh, posit that it happens far more frequently today uh, that most murders in America occur for purely economic reasons. And you're probably guessing right that I'm talking about abortion there. Most abortions that have been perpetrated in America are because of lack of convenience and the economic cost it's going to be. This person's not going to be able to make it through college or, uh, or it'll uh, hold them down from uh, having two jobs. Or, uh, but you look at the statistics and most of them, of uh, these murders, are purely for the worship of the almighty dollar. Now, murder can be more in more subtle forms of endangering the lives of employees without their knowledge. And so I think it does continue to occur in America. Now, it's not just the wicked accumulation of money that brings judgment. It's also the wicked way in which that money was used. For example, verse 3 speaks of hoarding wealth even when it was in their power to pay the debts. Now, hoarding is a, a use of money. And the rich who refused to pay what was owed in verse 4, it's clear in verse 3 they had the money, or at least they had the goods that could have been converted into money, but they refused to pay uh, these, these, these wages. Last phrase of verse 3 says, you have heaped up treasures in the last days, and yet verse 4 says they're not paying their debts. So that's the issue there. And this hoarding has been going on for so long that verse 3 indicates that uh, uh, even their gold has begun to corrode. And uh, some people might think, well, gold doesn't really tarnish. Um, actually, it does. Uh, there are scientific papers showing the oxidation. It takes a long time unless there's a lot of alloys or impurities in the gold, and then it tarnishes uh, faster. But in any case, they've had this stuff accumulating for quite some time. 
And the word indeed in verse 4 indicates God expects them to be responsible stewards who use the, monies, the money in the way that pleases God, not in the way that ser serves the bottom dollar. And so they failed to have a steward's heart. Secondly, they were controlling of people without having a servant's heart. Their wealth, their power enabled them to be able to offer jobs, but then once they offered their jobs, who was going to sue them in court if they didn't pay these workers what they had contracted to pay them? They were using the people, not serving the people. And the last thing that he blasts is self-indulgence without a generous heart. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Now, he's not against pleasure and luxury. He's against pleasure and luxury when you're not paying your debts. Okay, that's what he is against. And again, this is something that Christians, I believe, do today. They owe other people... Uh, things and they say, well, I just can't afford to pay it, and yet they're living by a lifestyle of wealth compared to what's in the first century. You look at what's left over after bankruptcy proceedings, and my, oh my, there's a lot of money left over. I mean, there's a lot of things. Now, in the books, there aren't. <laughs> there's nothing left over. But some of these uh, movie stars who have declared bankruptcy, just amazing to me how much that they've been able to hang on to. And so if you owe people something, you're not paying them, and you're eating more than beans and rice, and you have more than one suit of clothes on your body, and you're living in a beautiful home, James's condemnation comes against you just as much. There are ways that you could sacrifice in order to pay your debts. And so what I want to do is I want to end by making a few applications based on the data that we have in this chapter. And I've already made some applications, for example, that it's okay to pray imprecatory psalms, for example. Uh, but the first one in your outline, point A, is that God does not condemn the presence of wealth, but he does condemn the abuse of wealth. And the reason I've added that, I won't spend a lot of time on that, is there are so many Christians who say the Bible is against wealth. It is not. It is not. It's against the abuse of wealth. Um, and let me just give you an example. I have seen relatively poor people abuse others in the ways that are mentioned in verse 4, just as much as I have, well, maybe not just as much, but I've seen it, just like I've seen the rich abuse those. I've seen the poor commit murders of abortion, just like I've seen the rich. So we do need to be even-handed in our treatment of this. Okay, the second principle is that even though wealth can be a tool of the godly, and even though Paul clearly praises the wise stewardship of the wealthy, the love of money or greed is always a snare. It is always a snare. Now, again, socialists don't apply this evenly handed. They, you know, they talk about the greed of the rich. They don't talk about a whole lot about the greed of the poor. I was talking with a, a pastor from Africa one day who had spent a number of years out there and a number of years here, and he, somebody asked him a question about the greed here. He says, oh, they, the, the abjectly poor in Africa were just as greedy as the rich are here in America. And so envy and greed knows no socioeconomic boundaries, and we need to apply it uh, all across the board. Now, I do want you to turn with me to 1 Timothy 6, and this is going to be sort of like a sermon within a sermon, and I maybe shouldn't do this, but I, I want you to follow along because this is an incredibly important passage when it comes to economics, and I'm going to be looking at verses 6 through 10 in a bit, but I want to place it into context, which the socialists frequently do not do. Uh, take a look at chapter 6 of 1 Timothy and verse 1. 
he says, let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. Now, I want to stop right there because the word for honor, teme, has financial connotations. You look it up in a dictionary, in fact, sometimes it's translated as profit or sometimes as, as price. And so it has financial connotations uh, to it. And what Paul was saying here is he did not want the servants complaining that the masters were making a profit off of them. Oh, what else is a master going to be making off of uh, employees? If he's not making a profit, there won't be any employees for very long, right? And so Paul admonishes employees not to be greedy, not to be reluctant to see the master receiving any amount of honor or profits. The masters are worthy of that. And the words all honor indicates that there is no such thing as an obscene prophet. All honor. There is no such thing as an obscene prophet. Let me illustrate this. Jesus said you should not even consider a 100-fold prophet to be obscene. He says it's a blessing. It's something you should expect. It's something you should pray for. He said some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Now, just to put this into perspective, a two-fold prophet is 100% profit. A 100-fold profit is 10,000% profit. Now, there's a lot of people out there who say that would be an obscene profit. We ought to be against it, and Christ says, no, that is a blessing. That is a blessing. And Paul comes down hard on the socialistic envy of welfareism and insists that the employees not begrudge the employers or the businesses of all kinds of profit. After all, they've contracted for the wages that they've got. They can go elsewhere if they want. And so let me read that again, and then we'll move on to Paul's words that slam anybody who fails to acknowledge that honor or that profit. In fact, he call it, he's going to say, if you're against the free market enterprise system, it is blasphemy. That's exactly what he says. Now, let's, let's read that. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. He says, if you are envying and begrudging the high profits that your employer is making, you need to repent of it because you're engaging in blasphemy. You're engaging in... That's, that's strong words. And he's talking there about an unbelieving employer. Well, let's look in verse 2 at what he says about a believing employer. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they're brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers. He is saying that the employees are benefiting the employers. Okay, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? And so he says, uh, because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Now, I'm reading this context because in a little bit, I'm going to read where Paul comes down hard on the rich. And he says, here's what I want you to do with the funds that I have given into your hands. But um, uh, it's not because they are rich. Take a look at verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in one of our series, we looked at Jesus' words, Jesus was so strong on the importance of profit here, he blasted the people for failing to gain the kind of profit, you know, the parable of the talents. And there's other passages as well. But he says, uh, they're not consenting to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with, <clears throat> with godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing. The preaching that comes from many pulpits, the socialistic preaching, just shows they know nothing about biblical economics. They know nothing. 
Paul even goes on to say in verse 5, we should withdraw ourselves from such envious socialists. Those are pretty strong words. Now comes the wonderful teaching, if God has given to us wealth, of how we use this wealth, well, even with poverty, how we use it to his glory. Take a look at verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. Here is the first step. If you have not learned contentment right now, before you get that next dollar, before you get the next hundred dollars or ten thousand dollars, you will never learn contentment. Contentment is an attitude where we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We're not seeking first, you know, our finances. We're seeking to serve God with our finances, but it's God's glory that we are seeking after. And it's, it's impossible to have contentment if money has become our idol. <clears throat> okay. Um, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. And I believe it's not just great gain spiritually, it's great gain materially. And the reason I say that is if you don't have money as an idol, you're using it in a way that pleases God. You're following God's word in the way in which you use it. God can trust you with more money. But if you're using it as an idol, it doesn't matter how poor you are. Jesus said to the person who failed to be a good steward of the talent that he gave to him, even what he has will be taken away. And so he says, we need to learn this godliness with contentment uh, very, very uh, quickly. Okay, he goes on in verse 7. He says, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. Just as we need to be wise in our redemption of time, because once that time has been spent, you will never get it back, we need to be wise in our use of money. Because once it is spent, that dollar is gone. You may be gaining new dollars, but you cannot respend that one. You have only one opportunity to use each dollar in a way that counts for God. Verse 8, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. That's pretty radical contentment. Just food and clothing? Come on, I've got to have at least an automobile. And he says, no, having food and clothing, with these we will be content. Paul had learned that. He had learned contentment in every circumstance. He had said, I have learned both to abound and to suffer want. Now, here comes the verse that I wanted to highlight. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. He doesn't say those who are rich. He says those who desire to be rich because that shows a total lack of contentment. Total lack of contentment. And it leads to a focus on life that will ensnare you and it will guarantee you will not have spiritual success. In the, in the movie Wall Street, uh, Gordon Gecko made a passionate speech to his stockholders and he said this, Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms. Greed for life. Greed for money. Greed for love. Greed for knowledge has marked the progress of mankind. Well, Jesus says the opposite. Exactly the opposite. Jesus said, beware and be on guard against every form of greed. You know, the reason God put the laws of free marketplace in place is to control greed to some degree to ameliorate the problems of greed and to harness it in a way that would, would be productive of good, but he did not do it to glorify greed, and uh, not at all. Now, on the other extreme in that movie, Bud Fox says, money makes you do things that you don't want to do. 
Now, he had it wrong as well. Money doesn't make you do that. It's the love of money, the lust for money that makes you do that. And if we had added the words greed for or love for or desire for riches into Bud Fox's testimony, it would be exactly what Paul says in verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You're going to have those sorrows and that weeping and that howling that James talks about. Whether you are rich or whether you are poor, if you do not get rid of the desire for riches, to be rich. The love of money is a snare. Colossians 3.5 says, Greed is idolatry. Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. You know, it's, it's really a focus issue. Just think of Abraham and Lot. They're both rather wealthy. Lot is greedy. Abraham says, you pick the land. You go that way, I'll go this way. You go this way, I'll go that way. Well, his heart saw how beautiful and lush the areas around Sodom and Gomorrah were, he picked that. And his greediness eventually led for him to lose everything. Abraham was given more. Why? Because God trusted him uh, with more. And so it's really a perspective issue. Now, the third lesson that we can learn from James is that we should not withhold money from those that we owe it to. Leviticus 19.13 says about day laborers, and I just noticed here, it's a different verse than I put in. I think uh, 24 is probably similar, but this one says... You must not cheat your neighbor or rob him. You must not keep a hired worker's salary all night until morning. So if we've contracted for daily wages and you procrastinate even one night, God's judgment is upon you. Why? Because God takes contracts seriously. He takes them very seriously. Now, we may not be the landowners, uh, you know, or hiring people out. In fact, we might convince ourselves we don't even need to listen to James's advice because uh, we're poor. You know, this doesn't even apply to me. Let me assure you that most of you, including myself, are incredibly rich compared to first century Christians and compared to most people in, 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 in the world. I grew up in a country where true poverty reigned. People were hungry all the time. Uh, most of my friends who were out there, I mean, we gave clothes as we had them, but uh, we didn't have a lot to give out. But they, their, their clothes were so full of holes and ragged, they didn't cover very much. <laughs> you could see just about everything. It was just flimsy rags that were hanging around them. They were happy to have a little handful of grain once a day to chew on, and sometimes they got it once every other day. Now, there was real, uh, real poverty, and in contrast, we are so rich, most of us have all kinds of servants to wash our clothes, and those servants are called our washing machines. Uh, we can afford four burly men to carry us, you know, over to the grocery store and back from the grocery store, and it's called our automobile. And uh, we can afford um, to have people fanning us, you know, to keep us cool in the summer, and it's called our air conditioning. And we have messengers that can deliver messages across town so quick, we got the best of the best, better than the emperors had back then, because we got telephones, and we've got email, and we've got uh, snail mail. Now, we hire people to chop our wood and bring it into our stove so that it can heat the house and cook our food, and we call that natural gas. We are rich. We don't think it, but even the poorest of us, really, we are rich. And so we need to listen to James's words. When we order a service from a contractor, and we make that contractor wait month after month to get paid, 
We come under Christ's condemnation. We come under God's condemnation. Our bills must be paid on time. We must not rob God of tithes. Don't withhold money from those that you owe it to. If we defraud, God's judgments will come upon us in the church just as surely as they will come upon people outside of the church. A fourth lesson is that we should be wise in the way in which we use God's resources and we should be generous. Now, the two are not always simultaneous because some people think they're being generous and really they're not being wise with their money. They shouldn't have given that money to that person because it's just going to make them even more uh, dependent and, and, and not help them to uh, get out of the trap that they're in. Uh, but God often gives the wealthy more money because he trusts them to share it in a responsible way that will benefit others. 1 John 3.17 says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So there is the generosity part. Uh, we cannot allow cynicism because of all of the welfare attitudes that we run across in people who are not deserving to make us blind to true need when the true need arises. In 1 Timothy 6 passage that we read from earlier, Paul commanded the rich, quote, to do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, that's tough. That is very difficult to do. In fact, there's a coalition of uh, wealthy um, uh, philanthropists, wealthy Christians in the South, who have repented of having given money away irresponsibly in the past, and what they have done is they have been strategizing together on how to give money strategically in ways that will not create dependencies but will enable people to be independent and will affect the culture for the long term. And I just praise God that these people are beginning to think in this way, but it is a difficult thing. And so this point, really, there's a balance here. Uh, the last lesson is that wealth is no security. The rich need to be reminded of that and the poor need to be reminded of that. Wealth is no security. First of all, it cannot protect you from sorrow, you know, from the weeping and howling that you see in James chapter one verse, uh, 5, verse 1. Again, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul told Timothy, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Misers can't enjoy their wealth because they're trusting in their wealth too much. God gave those things for us to enjoy and to enjoy the giver from them. And they can't because they're so concerned that they might need that money in the future. They can't enjoy it in the present. And um, when it becomes a, an idol, it becomes a taskmaster that takes away our joy. Sometimes it does that by driving us, becoming workaholics. Sometimes it separates between friends. Sometimes it brings depression. And in the article, he confesses this. I've had no life. I've missed it. And if you haven't got a life, material things mean nothing. I've lived in a palace with eight Rolls Royces and two helicopters, so there's nothing anyone can tell me about that. There's times I put my head in my hands and think, what's this all about? I lead a dull and lonely life off stage. Show business has cost me a lot of money and two marriages. Categorically, it has not been worth it. Those are sad words, and yet that's exactly the kind of thing that Paul was talking about, of the, un, you know, the, the, the sorrows uh, that uh, stand before people who are gripped by riches. 
So James and Paul stand united on this. Secondly, wealth cannot protect you from a crash. Now, the crash of the wealthy in chapter 5 was the seven-year war between uh, 67 and 74 AD, but there are all kinds of crashes that go on. A number of years ago, I read about a meeting of some of the most powerful and wealthy people in the world who had gathered in 1923, and of the eight people who met at the Bridgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago, of the eight people who met, seven of them had disastrous reversals in their life. Charles Schwab died penniless. Uh, Richard Whitney, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, spent the last years of his life in Sing Sing Prison. Arthur Cutton, the incredibly wealthy uh, wheat speculator, he became insolvent. Leon Fraser, president of the International Bank of Settlements, committed suicide. Albert Fall was pardoned from federal prison, but it was only so he could die at home. Seven out of the eight, I didn't read all of them, but seven out of the eight had major reversals of fortune. And I thought that was such a great illustration of what, what Paul says about the uncertainty of riches. You never know when you're going to lose it. Or what James talks about is the great stock market crash. Well, it wasn't really a stock market crash, but uh, everything crashed, right? You, you know what I'm talking about there. So whether you're poor or whether you're wealthy, work and trust God. I love the words of Oliver Cromwell. Trust God, keep your powder dry. That was during the war. And then finally, don't think that wealth can shield you from <clears throat> God's judgment. And as I mentioned, we're going to be singing this psalm from Asaph, in which he felt envious of the rich, wondered why God uh, allowed them to get away with so much evil. He says, don't even worry about them. Don't fret about them, because uh, they're going to be fattened for the slaughter. Now, he brings other words of comfort, James does, in verses 7 through 12. But what these verses that we have covered remind us of is that we are stewards of all of our money, and that means we are going to be giving account before the judge of this universe for how we have handled that money. And so I want to encourage you not to worry about the people out there, maybe who abuse you, but I want you to bring your finances and all of your financial attitudes to the Scripture and subject them to the Lordship of Christ. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. Even when it's hard-hitting, even when it steps on our toes, and Father, I pray that you would bring us to repentance, grant to us uh, genuine repentance and help us to live the joyful life that comes from that contentment that uh, Paul talked about. I pray that you would help us to avoid the wailing, the misery, the sorrows that uh, these uh, ungodly wealthy in James chapter 5 experienced and help us uh, to make our focus such <clears throat> that whether we are rich, whether we are poor, We've learned contentment, that we're seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness and seeing you add all of these things to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>